Hey guys, I am so glad to be back here with you tonight. We are jumping right back into the middle of our Grandma Did What series, where we've been looking at the ladies who are listed in the lineage of Jesus from the book of Matthew chapter 1. There's four different women that are listed there that are grandmas of Jesus. And when you look at their lives, there's some crazy things that went on in those accounts in Scripture. We started a couple weeks ago by looking at Tamar, who was the first one, and then moved on to a lady by the name of Rahab. Both of those ladies they're grandmas of Jesus, and they both did things that would make many of us think twice before we claim them as our own grandmas. And we're not going to jump back into the, the accounts of their lives, but you can go back and read about Tamar in Genesis 38, and you can go back and read about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. That brought us to the third grandma of Jesus that we see in Matthew chapter 1, and that's a lady by the name of Ruth. Now, she has an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to what happened in her life. And we've been walking through that. Last week, we finished chapter 3. Tonight, we're going to jump into chapter 4 and finish up the book. And just so you know where we've been, in case you weren't able to be here or missed out on part of it, Ruth is a lady who was the daughter-in-law of Naomi and Elimelech. So it goes back a little bit at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. Elimelech and Naomi lived in Judah, and there was a famine in Judah, so they left to take care of their family, and they moved to a place called Moab. Now, that's a place that wasn't friendly with Judah. These, these two groups of people were not nice to each other. They were kind of enemies at each other. So for Elimelech and Naomi to move there, that was kind of a big deal. And not long after they moved there, Scripture tells us that they, they were just going to visit there for a time, but they ended up settling there, and Elimelech dies. So now Naomi doesn't have a husband, but she does have two sons who are still able to grow up and take care of her. And as they grow up, both of those boys get married, and they married two Moabite women. Again, that's something that would have been frowned upon in Jewish culture. And that even continues to get worse because once they get married, both of Naomi's sons die. So now she's just got her two daughter-in-laws. She's got Orpah and she's got Ruth. And she tells both of them, hey, you need to go back to your mother's house. You need to go back to where you have a chance of getting married again one day. And, and that way somebody can take care of you because during that time as a woman, the, the ladies couldn't take care of themselves. They had no way to, to get jobs and provide for themselves. They were dependent upon husbands or sons to take care of them. So Orpah says, okay, you know what? I'm gone. And she heads back to her, her mother's house. But Ruth she doesn't do that. She has a love for Naomi, and she tells Naomi, wherever you go, I'll go. Whoever your God is, your God's going to be my God, and wherever you die, that's where I'm going to die. So Naomi can't convince Ruth to leave, so Naomi runs back to Judah and takes Ruth with her. And when they get there, remember, they, they can't provide for themselves, so they do something called gleaning. And, and we talked about that a week or so ago. Gleaning is where farmers would take their fields, and as people were, or as they were harvesting the fields, they would leave some of the harvest on the corners or edges of the field. And when they were harvesting, if they dropped part of the plants or that they were harvesting, they would leave those on the ground as well. And the deal was, it was actually written out in the Old Testament before the book of Ruth, that they were supposed to leave those things for people who couldn't provide food for themselves, for the poor, for widows, for orphans, and, and people who were traveling through. And Ruth decides she's going to go and she's going to glean so that she can be able to provide something for herself and for Naomi. And in this process, Scripture tells us she ends up in the field by the name of a man named Boaz. And Boaz takes notice of her. 
and Boaz makes sure she has plenty of food and Boaz makes sure she has plenty of water and Boaz makes sure that nobody takes advantage of her and nobody harms her. And come to find out that Boaz is related to her dead father-in-law, Elimelech. In fact, he's, he's what Scripture calls a redeemer, which if you don't remember what that is, there was this Leverite marriage tradition that happened that if a man married a woman and the man died without a child, then the man's next in line would be his younger brother would come through and would marry that same woman and have a son with her so that that dead brother's family line could carry on. Make sense? So that, that, was kind of, that, that was the redeemer. And if it wasn't a brother, then it would be a cousin or some kind of family member that was supposed to fill that role. So Naomi comes up with a plan and says, hey, Boaz is our redeemer. So Ruth, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make yourself look all pretty. You're going to go find him. And you're going to basically propose to him. Remember he did that and she did that in a really weird way last week when we talked about it. If you, yeah, if you don't remember that, you need to go back and read it. But long story short, she waits till he goes to sleep at the threshing floor where he's taking care of his crops. She lays down at his feet, uncovers his feet, and then waits for him to wake up. And of course he wakes up like, what's going on? There's a woman laying at my feet. She wasn't there when I went to sleep. And she says, I want you to be my redeemer. She basically proposes because that's the only way that's going to happen. And he says, hey, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. You will be redeemed, but there's a kink in the plan. He says, there's a closer redeemer than I am, which meant there was somebody in line ahead of him to marry Ruth. There was somebody in line ahead of him that was supposed to take that role and provide for them. But he says, here's the deal. You go home. Here's more barley. Make sure you got plenty of food. Don't tell anybody you were here because I don't want to ruin your reputation. And you need to know that I'm going to take care of this today. And that's where we ended Ruth chapter 3. Ruth goes home and Naomi says, hey, show me what he sent you with. Tell me what he told you. And then Naomi looks at Ruth and says, he's going to keep his word. We just have to wait. And that's where we ended the chapter. So tonight in Ruth chapter 4, we get to see what actually happens. Does Boaz keep his word? Does he actually do what he says he's going to do? So that's what we're going to do as we read through Ruth chapter 4 tonight. But some of the things I want you to make sure you remember that we've looked at this so far is the idea that Naomi and Ruth, they faced problem after problem after problem. I mean, they found themselves in bad situation after bad situation. Yet what we've seen in all three chapters so far is that they never lose hope. Now, there is one point in time where Naomi says that, that God has cursed her because she's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, she's got nothing. But as you watch her language throughout the rest of the book, she always has hope in who God is. She always has hope that God is going to take care of them even when she can't see how that's going to happen. So we're jumping into Ruth chapter 4 to see how this wraps up tonight. So let me ask you the questions when we study a book that I always ask you. Who wrote the book of Ruth? We have no idea. It's an Old Testament book of history. We're not told who the author is. Like I've said before, it's not like the New Testament books that Paul wrote and Paul introduces himself and says, hey, church, I love you, church. I need you to listen to me. And he encourages them and he, he, he kind of scolds them a little bit. It's, it's not like that. We're getting an account of what happened. So we don't know who the author is. But we do have an idea of when it was written. When is that? 
around 1010 BC. Again, some scholars differ. They give a range of about three or 400 years, but most agree it's around that 1000 or 1010 BC time. And there are two key themes that we've seen over and over in this book. What are they? Kindness and redemption. That is the most excited way you could have said that. Thank you. Kindness and redemption. That's exactly right. Everyone should be that excited when we talk about this stuff. Kindness and redemption, that's what we see over and over. Because you see Ruth, she could have walked away from Naomi at any time. And she didn't. She showed love and she showed kindness. In fact, if you watch and go back and read the interaction between Ruth and Boaz, he actually tells her that she has shown kindness to him by even just listening to him, by giving, her, by giving him her affection and her attention. So you see that play out over and over, and then you see Boaz's kindness to Ruth. And because he's kind to Ruth, he's also being kind to Naomi. And this idea of redeemer or redemption, we see, I, I think, in, in the original uh, language, I, I want to say that word redeemer or redemption is used in some form over 20 times in this book. Because the whole point of this book, everything that we're seeing is the fact that Boaz is going to make sure that this family who was in desperate need of being saved from their situation, he's going to redeem them. He's going to take care of them. He's going to provide for them. What a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That every single one of us find us in a desperate, hopeless situation. And it's one that we can't get ourselves out of. We can't fix our sin problem. We can try to be good, we can go to church, we can give money, we can sing the songs, we can do nice things for people, but at the end of the day, we're still sinners. We still do things that dishonor God. And no matter what we do to try to fix that, we can't fix that situation. Naomi and Ruth, they did everything they could, but they still could not fix their own situation. It took a Redeemer to step in to give them the hope that their situation was going to be resolved. And that's what Jesus Christ offers to every single one of us. When we understand that we are sinners, when we understand that we can't fix our own sin problem, we need a redeemer. We need someone to step in and fix that problem to give us hope in a situation that we are absolutely hopeless to fix ourselves. That's the picture that we see right here as we walk through this book. We see a picture of the gospel right here in the Old Testament. That's what we mean when you hear the phrase, all scripture points to Christ. Even a story about a lady in the Old Testament who lost her entire family points us to a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So let's walk through this chapter tonight. Ruth chapter 4 verses 1 through 22 I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word and follow along with me. Here's what it says. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, 
you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times, and this is a weird custom. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the matter of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those are her dead sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of, his offspring, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezrod. Hezrod fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that we can spend a few minutes here tonight looking at, at, at who you are and how you reveal yourself through this scripture. And God, I pray that as we, as we take a few minutes to walk back through this, God, we'll see what it is we're supposed to learn tonight. God, help us to be changed because we've been in your presence and because we've been in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so Ruth, chapter 4. Some crazy stuff going on here. First of all, I haven't seen any of you walking around. Y'all clearly haven't made any legal dealings recently because everybody's got both shoes, right? Okay, so that's not happening. So let's, let's back up and let's kind of really understand what's going on here. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Let me read those again for us. Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. 
And he said, I will redeem it. So at the end of chapter 3 here, we've got Naomi. She tells Ruth, she says, hey, Boaz has said he's going to deal with it today. You need to trust him. If he says he's going to make something happen, then we just need to sit back and make sure that he's going to keep his word. And that's exactly what he does here. Scripture tells us right here, he goes to the city gate and he waits for this guy to show up. Now, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with that culture during that time, They didn't have, it wasn't like, hey, we need to do something and and deal with the legal system. So we're going to drive all the way up to Woodbine and we're going to go to the courthouse and we're going to deal with our stuff there. During that time, basically the courthouse was the city gate. That's where people would come to do their business because that gate was out there in the open in front of everybody. So everybody kind of knew what was going on and you could find witnesses who would say, okay, what you're doing, this is a a legal thing that's going on here. So Boaz goes to the city gate, Boaz sits down and it says he gathers 10 different people, 10 different elders to have them be witnesses to what he's about to do. He wants to make sure there's no question about what's going down that everybody knows that what he's about to do is on the up and up. So he starts this conversation. I I find it interesting that we never find out this other guy's name. I have no idea why we don't find that out. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Scripture just says, hey, he's the redeemer. But it's a role that he's getting ready to give up. So he starts this conversation. And as he starts this conversation, he lets this other guy know, hey, Naomi's selling her stuff. She's selling her land all this stuff that belonged to Elimelech, and you are the guy that is in line to purchase it. You're the one that's supposed to take care of her. So if you want to do it, if you want this land and to make sure everything is done the way it's supposed to be done, you're the redeemer, so I want you to tell me and I'll let you do it. But if you're not going to do what you say you're supposed to do, let me know because I want to do it. That's what Boaz is saying there. He's saying, it's your right. You take it if you want it, but if you don't want it, please let me know. I mean, it's kind of like when you're sitting at dinner with your family and there's that, that one last piece of food in the dish and all of you are looking at it, eyeballing it because everybody wants that last thing and everybody's going, no, no, you take it. No, you, no, I'm not going to take it. You take it. But inside you're really thinking, I really hope they turn it down because I really want it. See, Boaz isn't being quiet about that. He's saying, hey, it belongs to you, but if you don't want it, it's mine. So he starts that conversation, but notice what he doesn't say here. All he has talked about here is the land. He says, Naomi, she's she's selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And when when he thinks it's just the land, he's good. He says, I'll do it. It's mine. Boaz has not said a word about Naomi or Ruth here. It's not until we get to the next couple verses that we start to see a change in this situation. Look at what happens next in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. Then Boaz says, after the guy says, I will redeem it, then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So he's like, hey, This is your role. You good with it? Yeah, I'll take that deal. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm adding something else onto it. And look at how he responds. He says in the next verse, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. He changes his mind fast, doesn't he? 
As soon as he hears about that, hey, hey, you not only got land, but now you've got a new wife, he says, hold on, no, all bets are off. I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, let's be honest. You've probably kind of done something like that to your parents before, haven't you? Where you've really wanted to do something, so you give them just enough of the information that they'll say yes. And after they say yes and they stop and think, I should probably ask some questions. And they start asking some questions and they find out where you're really going and, and who, who's going to be there or who's not going to be there and what time you're... And they start getting the real answers to everything and they back up real quick and say, nope, never mind, you're not going there, you're not doing that, I've changed my mind. That's, that's exactly what's happening here. Once he got all of the information, he doesn't want to do any... He doesn't want to do this anymore. This man that Boaz is speaking to, what happened is he didn't understand what it was fully going to cost him. He thought, I'm going to pay some money, I'm going to have some land, end of story. But there was a whole lot more cost to what he was about to take on. It wasn't just the land, now he's going to take on a wife, which means he now has the role of a redeemer, that if he has a son with that woman, that son is actually, catch this, that son is actually supposed to be the son of Elimelech, who was dead, who was the dead husband of Naomi. Does that make sense? That's crazy, isn't it? So he backs up and he says, no, I can't do that. Because if I do that, then that's going to cause a problem with my own inheritance. And, and we don't know this. Some scholars believe that maybe he already had another wife. Maybe he had other kids already. And that if he had this other wife with other kids, now this land he was acquiring, it wasn't going to be just for his kids that he already had. It was going to be for this other son that he might have. And it was going to mess up the plans that he had. Basically, he didn't count the full cost of the role he was taking on. And in doing so, when he finally counted the cost, he decided it's not worth it. And, and, and here's why that stands out for us. If you sit here tonight and you say you're a disciple of Jesus, there's a lot of people that sit in churches every single week, and yet they've not counted the full cost of what it means to follow Jesus. You, you hear a great sermon and, and, and you pray a prayer and you say, you know what, I want that in my life. I want to be forgiven. I want to follow Jesus. And then all of a sudden you realize that means that's going to change the way I live my life. That means there may be some friendships that change or end. There may be some relationships that have to drastically look different than they look now. It may mean the plans that I had for my life don't line up for the plans that, with the plans that God has for my life, and I may have to change. And some people will say, you know what? That's going to cost me more than I thought it was going to. I don't really want to do that anymore. It's kind of like, you're right, when we talked about that back at Christmas. When we don't make room for Jesus, he wasn't willing to make room for all of this that it was going to cost him. And sometimes we do the same thing when we say we're disciples of Jesus, and yet we say, you know what, I'm not willing to pay that full cost. But here's where Boaz comes in, and this is where we see the picture of the gospel. He says, you know what, I am. I'm willing to pay everything it will cost so that I can have that role of redeemer. Look at what happens here in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This would be really weird to walk around and say, hey, you, good deal. Miss Kathleen can't stand feet, so she's not even looking up here at me right now with my shoe off. 
this, this. I don't have sandals. This is my shoe. But <laughs> I told you she hates feet. But this, this is what they would do. They would say, hey, we're making a legal deal. Here's my shoe. No, I'm not throwing that. Y'all will run out of here with my shoe. Leave me limping home tonight. I'm not doing that. But that's, that's what he does. He says right there, it says, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So that, that whole taking off of the sandal and giving it to the other guy, that seems like a really weird custom to us, but the, uh, things change over time. If you think about it, this has never happened in your lifetime and probably not in my lifetime. There was a time where if you gave somebody your word and you gave them a handshake, it was a done deal. That was how you sealed an agreement. Unfortunately, people are sinful. People lie. People are not trustworthy. And now we've got thousands and thousands of legal pages and documents and courts to actually get somebody to, just to do what they say they're going to do. Back then, the expectation was through this, you just give me your shoe. And if you give me your shoe, you're stuck. You're going to do it. So that's, that's what he did. He did. This land of Elimelech, it's been redeemed. But in, in, in buying this land... What Boaz has done is he's also redeemed Naomi and Ruth. Now, it, it says right there, he uses those words, I have bought, he's talking about Ruth, the Moabite woman, I have bought her to be my wife. You need to understand, that language there, he didn't like, this is not like slavery where he physically paid money and said, she belongs to me now. That language is talking about the fact that he's the redeemer. That in purchasing this land, He's also taking on this other role, one that he gladly assumed, one that he sought after. And that's, that's a big deal. So there, there, I just want to make that clarification there. But basically what you see is Boaz keeps his promise. At the end of chapter 3, Boaz says, I'm going to take care of it today. It may not be me. I may not be the Redeemer. But you will be redeemed today. And Boaz has taken his promise and he's seen it through and what God has done is God has provided for Naomi and Ruth when at one time Naomi her her own words back in chapter one was how harshly God had dealt with her and the fact that she had lost her husband and she had lost both of her sons and she had no way to take care of herself but God has been faithful because God always is faithful and now the people that have been able to see how God has worked in their lives, they celebrate with them and they're excited for them. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
So they're, they're making this Old Testament reference here to Rachel and Leah. These are ladies that came earlier in the Old Testament, and they were ladies who weren't able to have children. They wanted children, but they, they couldn't have them. But at some point in time, God allowed both of them to get pregnant and to bear a child. So they're basically saying, hey, you've taken Ruth as a wife. We want God to bless you in that way, the same way God blessed those ladies. We want you to be able to have a son to carry on that family line. And just so you know who Leah is, Leah was the mother of Judah. This is the tribe of Judah. This is the place where they're living, this area of Judah. This is the ancestor of the tribe that Boaz and Naomi both belong to. So they're saying, we want the same thing that happened for your ancestors to happen for you. And they're celebrating what has happened here. And then look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Boaz and Ruth get married. Boaz and Ruth have a son and, and pay attention to the significance of this child. The Leverite marriage, it was the tradition that helped carry on the family name of the deceased man. Boaz has redeemed Ruth and in doing so, he's also redeemed Naomi and that line of Elimelech that had died out. Tradition would say that this child would take care of Naomi in her old age. He would provide for her when before she couldn't provide for herself. And God is the one who's done that. God has orchestrated circumstances so that Naomi is taken care of, so that Ruth is taken care of, so that something amazing is coming down the road. Look at these last couple verses. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son who has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. We see right here at the end of the book of Ruth, all of this ties back to that same lineage that we saw in Matthew chapter 1. And here's the crazy thing. From our perspective, there's a lot of things that had to line up to have this ending. Without the famine, Elimelech would never have left Judah with his family and settled in Moab. Without Malon's marriage to Ruth and, and his death, there would never have been that love, that connection between Naomi and Ruth that we've seen in this book. Without Ruth's love for her mother-in-law, Naomi, she would never have ended up in Judah. She would never have met Boaz. Without Boaz taking notice of her, she would never have had the chance to make the connection she made and eventually marry him and have this son. Without all of these events lining up exactly as they did, there would have been no King David. Which, which means the rest of the nation of Israel that God grants through him wouldn't have happened the way that we see it happen here. There are so many things we can look back on and we say, man, it's really lucky that it happened that way. 
I can't believe the luck that they had. Or I can't believe that that, that just happened to fall the way that it did. They happened to meet. They happened to get married. We can look at it that way and talk about how lucky these ladies were. Or we can stop and we can back up and say, look at how God worked. All of those things that took years to play out. Look at how God worked. The grace of God was working generations before David was ever born so that at one point in time, God could raise up a king that would follow him and lead his people. And he did this by working in the life of Ruth and by working in the life of Naomi and Boaz with his mother who had been a prostitute and wasn't part of the nation of Israel. It goes all the way back. It it, it just keeps going. You can go farther and farther back and see the entire time the hand of God working. It is not likely that Naomi would have ever seen David become king, but I can almost bet you that David would have known who his grandmother was. So let's stop for a second and consider the bigger picture of what God has done in this situation with Ruth and Naomi. There's some tragic things that happen here. Things that if God wanted to, God could have prevented He could have made sure Elimelech didn't die. He could have made sure Malon and Chilion didn't die. He could have made sure that these ladies could have had a way to take care of themselves some other way than than depending on Boaz or the kindness of some strangers. Yet through everything that we see in here, God was always present and God was always working, even when it made no sense to the people involved in the situation. There was a bigger plan here. There was a bigger thing happening and their experiences, those good experiences, those bad experiences, every single one of them were essential to what God was doing to bring His plan and His glory to the forefront of everything that was happening. He was doing that then and He's still doing that now. That's what we need to understand from this tonight. That God is not just this God that acted with His people in Scripture and now He's silent and we don't hear from Him anymore. He's not involved. God didn't just set everything in motion and step back and say, let's see how this plays out. God is involved in His creation. God works in and through the lives of people that have put their faith and trust in Him. People that have been forgiven of their sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my question for you tonight is this. What if your circumstances, what if your current situation, what if it's not really about you at all? What if what you're going through, good or bad, What if it's part of God's greater plan to set up what He's doing years from now, but it takes what you're experiencing right now for that to be able to play out? That's what happened here. They didn't see where this was going. But we can look back now and we can see what God was doing. Because for them there was heartache and there was desperation. But the end goal of all of this was not their happiness. The end goal was God's glory and the salvation of humanity. So God allowed those things to happen so that His plan could play out. And I can, I can, I can almost promise you this. The people in the situation at the time, they didn't understand it. And they didn't know why. And it didn't make sense. Yet if they could step back and read this now, oh, I see what God was doing. 
And that's what we get to see when we look at passages like this. Believe it or not, the entire purpose of your life as a disciple of Jesus, it is not about you. It's about you bringing glory to God with your life. It's about serving His greater purpose and His greater plan. And sometimes that's painful. Sometimes it's not. But in the end, it doesn't matter because it's all about God anyway. And we may look at that and think, well, that's not really fair. Well, that's okay because we're not God. We didn't create us. He did. We didn't make ourselves for our own glory. God made us for His glory. And while that may be hard to focus on in the midst of your life and whatever is going on, I challenge you to take that view tonight. When it comes to your life, when it comes to what's happening right now, the relationships that you have, the good things that are happening, the struggles that you're happening, I challenge you to start looking at it from the viewpoint of, this isn't even about me. How's God supposed to get glory right now? How is God working so that He can be glorified right now in my life and so that He can be glorified down the road when I'm not even here anymore? They didn't understand their situation, but they trusted God. And as we look at that bigger picture, we can see where God was headed with that plan the entire time, and it was to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. And these are the people He chose to do it with. You have no idea what's going to happen generations from now because of what you've done to honor God in your life. But that is exactly what we're called to do. In every moment, in every situation, will you take that challenge from God, not me, to see that your life is part of a bigger picture? That there's more going on than what's happening with you right now. And I don't say that to diminish anything that may be happening in your life, because you may be going through some junk right now that is very real. And I don't in any way try to make that seem smaller. But what if God's calling you to honor Him in the middle of that junk? What if He's allowing you to experience that so that you can learn to trust Him, so that you have the opportunity to glorify Him and to point other people towards Him because God has a greater plan through your life to affect more people simply by the way that you choose to honor Him. That's what we're called to do as disciples of Jesus. Our lives... They're not about us. That's why Scripture tells us that we're supposed to take up our cross and follow Christ daily. Taking up our cross means we are willing to go to our death because that's what you're doing when you're carrying a cross. You're walking to your death. That means your life's not about you anymore. It's about God's glory. Is that the way you see your life tonight? If it's not, it may be because you don't have a relationship with God. It may be because you've never done what we talked about at the beginning and you've never understood that you're a sinner and you can't fix it. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. None of us can. It takes God to be the Redeemer, to step in and act on our behalf, to pay the price that we can't pay so that we can be His and put our faith and trust in Him and ask Him to forgive us. And from that moment on, we belong to Him. And our goal, our purpose is now to glorify Him with our lives. If if you're here tonight and and you've never done that, tonight's your night. Stop living your life for yourself. 
Start living for something that's way bigger than anything you can imagine for yourself. Start living for the glory of God by putting your faith and trust in Him. And if you're here tonight and you say, you know what, I've got that relationship, but my life has still been about me. Maybe you need to hand some things over to God tonight. Maybe when we start to sing, when we stand and that music starts playing, maybe you need to spend a few moments uh, at your seat just talking to God. Don't even stand up. Sit there and deal with God first. Or maybe you want to come and kneel down with some others and pray for each other. That God will give you the strength to live for Him and to see the greater picture for His glory in the midst of your situation right now. God has called us to live a life that honors and glorifies Him because there is a bigger picture at play than anything we can ever see. We are called to live for Him and to glorify Him. Will you do that tonight? Let's pray. God, we thank You. Thank You that we can come together tonight, God. We thank You that we can spend time in Your Word. And God, I pray right now, God, I pray for every person in this room, myself included. God, it's so easy for us to get bogged down in the day-to-day and, and, and the problems and the frustrations and, and even the good things. But God, help us to step back and see the bigger picture of what you're doing. Help us to live lives that honor you and glorify you because that's what you've created us for, for your glory and your honor. God, help us to be willing to die to ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Stand and sing.